Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. So I've got a very powerful tool for predicting the future that I want to share with you. Now, it's not the yield curve. It's not some sort of economic indicator. It's actually more so looking at what drives human nature. Because if we can figure out what drives human nature and if that is cyclical, then we can determine what's most likely to happen in elections. We can determine what's likely to happen with social unrest. And if we can determine those two things, we can determine how likely it is that we go into uh, another war among all the economic stuff that we talk about on this channel all the time. So let's start by going over a quote that I think really summarizes everything. I'm sure you've heard this quote, but you might not have thought about it in these terms. So the quote I'm referring to is right here. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. And they've got the infinite logo here that just happens over and over and over and over again. Now, if you study history, uh, here's, I guess, the bigger version of that. So if you study history, whether it's the Roman Empire the Ottoman Empire, it doesn't really matter. This cycle happens over and over and over again. It's, it's, it's just the way we're hardwired as human beings. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Because when I was preparing for this video, I, I, I wrote this down. I was trying to think about the contrast that is such a paradox in human nature. And on one hand, we have an unbelievable ability to create. We have an unbelievable ability to invent, to make life better, to constantly pursue progress that results in the standard of living for society at large improving. Yet at the exact same time, we have an equal or maybe slightly less, not just ability, but insatiable desire to self-destruct. And these two forces are at play with human nature constantly, constantly. So as an example, when you go to the United States, you hear people complaining about you know, whether or not a, a 12-year-old or an 8-year-old should be able to determine what gender they are. Okay, when you go to Colombia, they don't talk about that. Why? Because they're trying to figure out how to put food on the table. You see, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And as people get richer and richer, or not just rich, but let's say more secure, that they don't have to worry about putting food on the table. They don't have to worry about putting a roof over their head. Now, I know a lot of Americans do, but I'm saying just in general, relative to other societies. What you see as times get better and better and better, people will self-destruct. They'll create roadblocks that don't even exist. They'll create drama because they have an insatiable need to have some component of their life in turbulence, right? I mean, you can see this at the local uh, country club with uh, not just the guys, but you know, with the women out there. A lot of these gals, I mean, bless them, but they've never worked a day in their life, and uh, you know, they, for whatever reason, are in a position now where they're driving around the Mercedes, their kids go to private schools, the, you know, they've got access 
to the guy's resources, all the money in the world. And what do they do all day long? They sit there and complain. They sit there and complain. While my maid from Venezuela <laughs> is the happiest gal I've ever seen in my life. And another area that you see this, and it happens over and over and over again, is people literally kill themselves when they get richer. So what I mean by that is you see it in culture after culture after culture in emerging markets and developed markets, frontier markets, where as people get, when they go up the economic ladder, they go from walking to riding a bicycle, to driving a scooter, to driving a, a small little car, to then driving maybe a little SUV. They, they keep going up the economic ladder, but as they do so, they smoke more, they drink more, they eat more sugar, they eat more fat, quite literally killing themselves as they get richer. I mean, when you go to these countries uh, outside of the United States, uh, as an example, when I was in Croatia or when I was in Montenegro, I mean, Americans would look at those countries and say, yeah, they're, they're, they're not poor. I mean, they're not third world countries, but they're sure not as rich as we are. And you walk around Montenegro, as an example, everybody is thin. Everybody. And I'm not talking about anorexic thin like you see in the United States, healthy, thin, where you go to the United States and 70% of the people are overweight. I would argue probably 40% are morbidly obese. And the, so then you've got, let's just say 70%, then the other 20% are anorexically thin. And then you've got a very small percentage that are healthy and they're very, very healthy. You know, they're going to the gym every single day, eating well, doing all these things. And a, a lot of Americans kind of, uh, they, don't, they have a hard time accepting that because they don't understand that they've been conditioned mentally. And what I mean by that is if you look around you and everyone else is fat and you're fat, after, it's weird. You, you almost, it's like an optical illusion where you quite literally brainwash yourself into believing you're not fat. Like you literally look in the mirror and say, I'm not fat. I, I've got a, uh, I, I've seen this happen over and over and over again with people I know where uh, they'll come down to Columbia and all of a sudden they're like, geez, I need to, I need to hit the old gym here, but they go back to the United States and every one of their friends looks exactly like they do. And they truly believe that they are a healthy weight. And then you go online and say, okay, what, what, what is a healthy weight for someone that is, let's just say six feet tall. And they're 75 pounds over that. Yet they just, oh, I'm just a big guy. No, you're not. You're a fat ass. And the reason I say it that way is because we know damn well that that is just as bad for you as smoking a pack of cigarettes every single day. But what's bizarre is we sit there and condemn that, but yet we glorify people who weigh 400 pounds. But anyway, getting back to the point there, you can see that as you go to a society that's quote unquote richer and richer and richer, they're fatter because it's this hardwiring that as we do better and better and better, we have to self-sabotage ourselves to a greater and greater degree to make sure that we're not accelerating at too fast of a pace. I mean, I, who knows why the, the evolutionary hardwiring is there, the creation hardwiring is there. I don't know, but you can't dispute it. And it goes right back to this diagram that we're going over, or we went over at the beginning, where hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and those weak men create hard times. So now let's 
take it back to economics. And if we can assume that this is true, and I don't think anyone would really dispute this, then we can take this uh, theory and apply it to what we're seeing in macro. And then we can use that to make some predictions as to what will happen on many different fronts throughout the rest of the 2020s. Okay, so now let's go over to the United States deficit as a percentage of GDP. Now, what's interesting is starting in, let's just say, the mid-1970s, the deficit got bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, we had this big rise up here. A lot of people contribute that to tax increases. It wasn't. It was just more economic activity due to the internet. So can you really contribute that? Uh, You know, it's one of these cross currents that we talk about all the time. It's like inflation, deflation. You've got these cross currents that are battling each other. It's like this tug of war. And at a certain point, you'll have inflation that will overwhelm the deflationary pressures and vice versa. And here, you had a, a short burst where human ingenuity just overwhelmed the natural progression of societal decline that we outlined in in the diagram. You know, strong men create good times, et cetera. So then after we have this uh, kind of anomaly, then you go right back to the trend where the deficits get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, we can argue about whether the debt itself is a problem as far as supply and demand, but nobody disputes that the deficits are going to get bigger. And I don't think anybody disputes that from a standpoint of the overall economy, that's not good. So, I mean, you just, it, it's a pretty th- simple thought experiment. 100% government spending the GDP means we live in communist Russia. Last time I checked, that was a very inefficient economy. So it, it, right now we're about 50%, by the way, of government spending as a percentage of GDP. And in my view, that's only going to get worse. So this takes us back to kind of asking the question, why? Like, like why was it that that back here in, uh, I mean, you go back to the 1800s, but you're right around the zero mark outside of uh, the Great Depression and war, and then you go right back to this. You know, what's interesting, and for those of you who are a little younger, you probably don't even remember this, but for those of you who are my age, And older, I guarantee you remember this very, very well. And it revolves around welfare, unemployment, if you will. I remember going to church as a kid. I remember, you know, at school, being around my parents, basically being around adults, a lot of adults that grew up uh, in tougher times. You know, my father was in, uh, grew up in the Great Depression, for heaven's sakes. Um, And I, I didn't just grow up, he was an adult. Uh, during the Great Depression, and then he uh, flew planes in World War II. But uh, so I had a first-hand view of this attitude that that generation had. And I think very few people even my age get to see that front and center. And the attitude was even, you know, during the Great Depression, that there might have been welfare, there might have been unemployment, but out of principle, Out of principle, I'm not going to take it. I mean, I'm sure you guys saw the movie based on a true story. It's about the boxer. Uh, What was that? I I can't recall the title. It was with Russell, a guy named Russell Crowe. I believe that was the guy that was in Gladiator, the Australian guy. But he was in this boxing movie where he was going through hard times. I believe it is set in in the Depression. 
and he had no other choice but to take welfare. And uh, when he got back on his feet, he actually paid it back. Not only did he stop taking welfare, he was keeping track of every single check and he tallied it up. So then when he got back on his feet, he literally, what, whatever he took, he paid back to the government. <laughs> I think I forgot the story. He like took it back down to the welfare office and wrote them a check. And you, you, I mean, young people like Josh on this live stream right now, they look at that as though it's science fiction. As, oh yeah, yeah, that's just a movie. They don't really think about it. But I know from being around my father that that's how people were. And they would do anything in their power not to take welfare. Anything. I mean, that was the last resort of the last resorts. I mean, a lot of them would steal before they would do that. Why? It was a matter of principle. That's what my father always told me, a matter of principle. So what's fascinating is when I was growing up in the 1970s, the, the, the younger generation then didn't have as much of an attachment to principle, but it was still part of the overall psyche, meaning that, you know, I remember there's a, a few people in my church that uh, had to take welfare and they, they were more accepting of it, but they still, they were kind of, I, I don't really want to do this. There was still a little bit of that attitude that, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this, but I, I know I shouldn't be doing it, but I'm going to do it anyway because I don't really have a choice. There, there was more of an acceptance while at the same time understanding the principle that drove the generations before. Now where we've come is the complete opposite, where instead of people denying welfare out of principle, people are saying that they demand welfare out of principle. I demand that you give it, it is I have a right to health care. I, the, I have a right to housing. I have a right to universal basic income. This is a matter of principle. It, 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 when you think about it, it's, it's completely bizarre that from my father's generation to the, the younger generations that we're dealing with today, they've done a complete 180. It, it's literally the opposite based on the exact same argument of principle. Well, doesn't this take us right back to where we started? Of course it does. Of course it does. And so if we can safely conclude, which I think we can, that we are in this time frame right here, weak men. And if you want any proof of that, like I said, go right back to the deficit spending as a percentage of GDP. And then let's look at Japan. Because again, what we want to do here is we want to try to predict the future. And if we can say that, okay, this cycle works and the deficits prove among a lot of other things, that we are in this time frame of weaker men. Okay, what does that mean for the deficits moving forward? What does that mean for the U.S. economy? And what does that mean for social unrest and geopolitical unrest? Hey, guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options, Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. 
If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Let's go over to Japan. And I'd like to point out, you know, a lot of people are really upset about the deficit. But, but what's ironic is they're ups- the, the, the reason they're upset about the debt is our ability to pay it. Like, to me, that is totally bizarre. Let's, oh, okay, that might be an issue, but that, that's, look, that, that, that's, uh, we got bigger fish to fry. The elephant in the room is that in order to create the debt, the government has to spend money, and that's going to create a misallocation of resources. It's going to create malinvestment. It's going to create moral hazard. It's going to create all of these economic distortions. So forget the debt, for heaven's sakes. That's just a measurement of how much the United States has, the the central planners have already distorted the economy. That's all it is. Because you sit there and are, are we going to assume that if we could just wave a magic wand tomorrow and the debt for the United States goes from 34 trillion all the way down to zero, would all of our problems be solved? Uh, look, the debt's no longer a problem. So that that's uh, yeah, it, it's the debt's no longer a problem, but overall society has an even bigger problem. Why? Because then the government is going to spend even more than it otherwise would have, which means the economy is going to be destroyed <laughs> faster to a greater degree than it otherwise would have. At least, I guess, one thing that you can say is at least the the perception of the debt being bad from a standpoint of us not being able to pay it, at least offers some sort of political constraint. But if the debt was no longer a problem, you paid it off, that political constraint wouldn't be there anymore. You see, people have to understand that the government spending is the problem. It isn't necessarily the, the, the payment or rolling over the debt or the interest rate in which we have to do so. But getting back to this here, if we assume that the uh, deficit is just a visual of the cycle or heading into the cycle of weaker and weaker men, you can see that Japan is, let's say, 15, 20 years ahead of us. But look at how it's just a predictable trend. So you had a surplus here in the uh, 60s in Japan. And then in the 1970s, it started to go down. Then we had this deficit, huge deficit in the 70s as a percentage of GDP. And then it went back up to a surplus because of this economic boom. But we all know that was phony. That was completely fake from a standpoint is it was just the government literally putting a gun, not literally, but figuratively putting a gun to the head of the bankers and and saying, lend. Lend, 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 lend. If you don't lend, you're going to lose your job. And uh, don't worry about getting paid back because the Ministry of Finance over here will cover that. We just need you to create more credit. So this is as, well, you know how that ends. That bubble just completely burst. And you go to a point where starting in the early 2000s, their budget deficit as a percent of GDP was 8%. 8%. And then it goes back 
up a little bit or it gets better, but then it goes right back down to a point where it's worse when we have the GFC. The trend is obvious here. So what I'm saying is that we have to assume that the United States is right behind Japan. And I think that if we go into recession, they'll probably catch up at an accelerated pace. And I would not be surprised if by 2025, I mean, we're double digits. And by you know the 2020s or the late 2020s that were at the, the World War II mark, you know, 20% plus, but it's not going to be in one-time costs or it's going to be in recurring costs that we just have over and over and over and over again. Why? Because we make all these promises because people are getting weaker and weaker and weaker and the richer they get, the weaker they're going to get and the more free stuff they're going to demand, which takes, takes us into this, basically this doom loop where they demand more and more free stuff the government is incentivized to get it to them, give it to them, because that's how they win elections. And that distorts, destroys the economy even more. You know, I always use that example of the heroin addict. And it's like the heroin addict. Let's just say that they were the only voter and they, they're just going to vote for the guy that's going to give them more free heroin. And that's the exact same position that the United States and Japan is in and the United States. And unfortunately, people really don't understand what people like Hazlitt, uh, Bastiat, and Thomas Sowell have taught us about economics. Let me give an example. Most of you probably know where I'm going with this. It's the seen versus the unseen. I was listening to a podcast with Tucker Carlson the other day. It wasn't his podcast. He was being interviewed. And he was talking about how, you know what, maybe the the, the debt doesn't really matter or the the, the government spending. Maybe the government should be spending on people. Uh, Maybe that's a good thing. You know, just this complete populist view that that I think is, uh, well, it doesn't have any bearing in, in actual economics. But he's sitting there saying that he went to Japan the other day and he was looking around. and He's like, man, they got it good. They got all these fast trains. They got all these highways with no one driving on them. The infrastructure is fantastic. And it's all due to government spending. So I'm a Republican, but maybe I want the government to spend. I just don't want them to spend on anything the Democrats want. I just want them to spend more money on the stuff I want, which is a, which is basically Donald Trump, right? I mean, let's be honest. Uh, uh, Donald Trump is no fiscal conservative. It's just... The, now that we're in this mode where the Republicans, the way they get elected is just by offering more free stuff and maybe tightening up the border. And then the <laughs> Democrats just get reelected by offering even more free stuff and then just letting people kill their own baby or something like that. that that's basically the difference between the two parties, right? Now. And the reason is because we are in the cycle and we're at the point in the cycle where as a society... We are weak men, and weak men are going to choose political leaders that not only give them free stuff, but they're going to choose political leaders most often that are, let's just say, bigger-than-life personalities that represent strength because subconsciously they know that they don't have any strength. And unfortunately, those types of leaders usually consolidate government, consolidate power, and eventually you get someone in there that's a megalomaniac sociopath and that takes you straight into World War II, or in this case, maybe World War III. Well, let's keep going. And this is a chart that I had the Rebel Capitalist team make the other day. And I, I want you to focus on this 
yellow line that represents real GDP. Now, I know this is not a perfect proxy for how well the economy is doing, but but it, it, it's decent. It, it's pretty good. It at least helps us see the trend and compare the 1930s to today, as an example. So we can see this trend in the 1870s start going down, 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 down to a point where in the Great Depression, it got down to pretty much zero. Now, keep in mind, this is not year by year. This is taking decade by decade. So this is just an average for the entire decade. So what we see in 1930s is the average for the whole decade was very, very close to zero. Let's just call it maybe uh, 1%, 2% real GDP growth. Then it goes back up as a result of all the government spending. But of course, that's not productivity. That's distorting the economy. And so what you would expect actually played out, that you would expect after that sugar rush that the uh, real GDP is going to continue to go down to a point now, or at least in the early 2000s, where it was barely, barely above. So from 2000 to 2010, the growth rate was just slightly above where it was in the 19. 30s. Let that sink in for a moment. The 1930s. Now it goes up slightly in the 2010s, but I think if we looked at this now uh, with the surveys of sickness and inflation and negative real wages and whatnot, uh, so far, if we took an average, I would assume that it would be a lot lower or at least probably down where it was in the 2000s. So you can see this trend in, in all of these macro charts. Well, if we see this trend going lower and lower and lower, what is that going to do to social unrest? Because you guys know darn well what happens when uh, the standard of living goes down for society at large. Does that usually impact the people at the top? No. In fact, a lot of times they get even more rich due to the Cantillon effect, as an example. It's really disproportionately impacting the poor and middle class negatively. And they get pissed, as well they should. But it's not just a group of people that are getting pissed. It's a group of people that are getting pissed, but a group of people that think the government owes them a certain standard of living. And they think that the government should provide that standard of living for them based on principle. So what do they do? They go to the streets. They demand more and more and more. They elect people that will give them more and more and more, which takes us into a cycle and takes us to a point where the only way the politicians can get out of that, because now the economy is just obviously in disarray, is to do what politicians have done throughout history as a, as a diversionary tactic, go to war. And here is uh, Bastiat talking about this seen and unseen. And when I was discussing uh, Tucker Carlson, I was using him as an example of someone, and, and you know, I'm not throwing him under the bus here uh, because he's not an economist. He he hasn't, you know, he's a he's a deep thinker on a lot of issues, but it's obviously obvious that he hasn't given this a lot of thought. And uh, I'm sure if you just gave him this book, he'd be like, wait a minute, maybe Japan isn't that great, <laughs> because what he's doing there, of course, he's making the mistake of just looking at the scene and not asking, well, what would it have been? Let's read these bullet points because this is very, very instructive. So between good and bad econ between good and bad economists, this constitutes the whole difference. The one takes account the visible effect, the other takes account both of the effects which are seen and also those which 
it is necessary to foresee. Now, this difference is enormous, for it almost always happens that when the immediate consequence is favorable, the ultimate consequence are ultimate consequences are fatal and the converse. Well, I'm going to read that one more time, guys, because this really ties everything together that we're talking about. Now, this difference is enormous, for it almost always happens that when the immediate consequence is favorable, like stimmy checks, like PPP loans, like UBI, like all that government spending that Tucker Carlson saw in Japan, the immediate effect is favorable. And you can see it. Look, this is, this is a bridge. Look at how amazing that is. Wow. Or look at it. Everyone got these checks because the government locked them in a cage. I mean, look at how great that is. The key is that the ultimate consequences of those short-term artificial gains are going to be fatal. Hence, it follows that the bad economist pursues a small present good, which will be followed by a great evil to come, government spending. While the true economist pursues a great good to come at the risk of small present evil. It's the difference going back to 2020 and saying, you know what? We're going to accept that we're human. Uh, we're going to accept that people should be able to make their own decisions. We're all adults here. Here's the data from the Cerveza sickness. You guys, if you want to keep your business open, keep it open. If you want to close it, close it. But we're not going to get involved. And we're going to let the chips fall where they may. And if a bank goes bust, they go bust. If depositors lose money, it is what it is. See, But we do the complete opposite, which to Bastiat's point, not only is a great evil, but at the end is fatal. All right, guys, some interesting stuff. I wanted to give you some food for thought over the weekend. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism. We'll see you in the next video.